Hi, welcome to Literaturely, a podcast about teaching literature. I'm Margaret Mock. And I'm Paige Wallace. This episode, we're going to talk about traditional texts that are usually taught a lot and new ways to approach them. There's always a lot of conversation, I think, since the 80s about the canon wars, what's, how do we change the canon, what's canonical. And while there's a lot of critiques, we still are including those same canonical works, whether they are canonical for the field or just it's the text that you've been taught, so we then teach them. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about this today. I'm also really excited because these are texts that we don't necessarily want to throw away because they're important uh, and they have a place in sort of education. It's like cultural capital. Yeah. That, like they, they're so influential that to know what this happened since, you kind of have to know what the foundation was. Right. But it gets really boring teaching them the same way over and over mm-hmm. again, right? And students are bored sometimes when it's their third time reading the yellow wallpaper and they're like, yes, this is propaganda like we got it um and so we we want to think about ways that we can come at them with new and exciting methods getting off of autopilot yeah classroom definitely there's a few goals and we've talked about some of them already that moving beyond those traditional approaches to think of these texts in new ways and exciting ways both to keep engaged ourselves and to get our students to better engage but also to better connect these texts to the 21st century. Just because they're old, just because they've been taught, doesn't mean they have to be presented as irrelevant or out of date or totally unrelevant to our lives. That, I think, do we want to dive into? Yeah, let's do it. So the two texts we're going to talk about this week are A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf and Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. I have a lot of thoughts on both, which will probably pop in and out. <laughs> so I, maybe we can begin by talking about like the, the sort of traditional ways in which this text mm-hmm. is approached. So things that we've done before that we are trying to you know expand on in the future. The thing that immediately comes to mind is that both of these texts now bear the burden of second wave feminism, where it's this... Their position as these super feminist texts that uphold us, that move us out of the domestic sphere, but they're, they offer one perspective and one experience, and that tends to be more middle, upper middle class, educated, um, certain goals, white, heterosexual, even though Gilman, we might... And Wolf are both not necessarily heterosexual, but mirroring that heterosexual identity that gets discussed. So how do we make it less second wave, more fourth wave? How do we bring it forward so that it's relevant to our students in the sort of cultural context in which they're living and walking in? I, I don't know how it is for you, Paige, but I know that when my students deal with these sorts of texts, one of the first things they say something along the lines of like, I'm so glad it's not like this anymore, that they feel really separate. They feel like these are issues that have, the book has been closed on and resolved. And so they just feel like they offer them a window into how things were rather than how things are, Um, which isn't always the most useful for classroom because it just kind of leads to patting on the back of we're so much further now. (laughs) Right. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think asking like important questions that expand like so if Wolf is critiquing the ways in which exclusion works so that her work or the the work of women um, aren't included 
what works aren't included today, right? So mm-hmm. um, then that helps. You're still not in the room. Yeah, so that helps us bring it forward so that we can't sort of do that pat on the back where, well, this problem is fixed. We've got a room now. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're all in the room at the university just like she wanted. That reminds me, sometimes I'll do some pairings of uh, Adrian Rich with A Room of One's Own and her article on revision. So this idea of how we see ourselves uh, or our feminist mission just from our one perspective and how that might be expanded when we look at it from someone who's still uh, on the outside of the room looking in the window. But I still think that's a pretty traditional sort of approach to a room of one's own. Something that I was thinking about while you were talking was how texts like a room of one's own and yellow wallpaper have been revised or reimagined or revisioned in digital spaces. So I know with a yellow wallpaper there are a lot of like sort of fan art like or fan culture Mm -hmm. for that text like drawings, comic strips and so I think that this text could be really interesting in the context of a popular culture classroom where we think Mm -hmm. about what are the reiterations of it for everything from like those really short youtube uh, videos of it or like films of it like youtube films quote quote but to some really popular like comic strips that are reimagining the yellow wallpaper yeah thinking about how we can move everyone's under the digital sphere I, i mentioned last time that i've had students who did digital curations and exhibits to provide context to a text. And so I'm thinking about if you move room of one's own to a digital room, what does that room look like? So who would we include in this room? How do we get to this room? And you and I have talked in the past about how the internet is perceived as this democratizing force. Everyone has an equal voice, but we also know that that's not entirely true. Who has access to faster speeds of internet? who has access to better resources like cameras, but also just who is the access for to decorate their rooms. That's something my students and I talk about in composition classes, that the YouTube vlogs, like their rooms are luxurious. It's meant to both be like intimate, you're in the room with them, so in their, their room of one's own, but it's their expensive rooms. Right. And, and so we still want to be in the rooms of those who have means and resources. So. Virginia Woolf is talking about, well, you know, our fathers had 30,000 pounds to bestow to universities to make sure their sons could go, but no one was giving 30,000 pounds for us. And it's like, yeah, you're still coming from a family that has 30,000 pounds to hand out. Um, What about the sons from families who have 10 pounds? Right, yeah. Um, what, What rooms do they have? So the digital room might be an interesting way to have students start thinking about this that for like vloggers or or to create that room themselves or even also like in the gaming world right uh who's allowed in that room um in that game in that sort of community and the ways in which digital communities aren't just sort of like those like virtual global villages but they, they can also be really exclusionary yeah so i think like thinking through that Virginia Woolf is creating a room for herself, but not necessarily other. So that provides one entryway to push our students to think about who else do we need to create rooms for? And how does that work with the canon? So rather than just erasing Virginia Woolf because she shows us how the canon has been exclusionary, that 
let's take those next steps. Like, let's yes and her rather than just no because. Right, um, yeah. And so what sort of texts or resources would we need to create these additional rooms? And in that way, we can put our students somewhat on the spot to critique academia itself. What steps does academia need to take to make this room bigger? And I've done this with Private Machine Brody to think about curriculum. Um, have you read Private Machine Brody? I have not. It's, it's really fun, really short novella. <laughs> but it's it's Muriel Sparks' send-up of fascism, but she does it by looking at a teacher, a very charismatic, very progressive teacher who creates this sort of cult personality with her students and creates her special sect out of her class, which she calls La Creme de la Creme. Of course. And she fosters them. She gives them each their own identity. And, you know, that sort of goes awry. <laughs> there's, but there's a lot of promise in the education she's giving because she, she's encouraging them to question the roles they've already been given. So the start is good. And so my students and I talk about curriculum with that, that what sort of curriculum should we be giving students to help them challenge authority without substituting our authority? And I think you could do something with that with a room of one's own, that thinking about the resources available in academia and thinking through academia's complicitness, complicity? Yeah. <laughs> this matter. I think that sounds like a really interesting activity and would also go, go really well with Adrienne Rich and some of her work. Mm-hmm. And then I'm always bringing up Sarah Ahmed, but would also go well with her work in living a feminist life. Mm-hmm. And then some of her newer stuff which is about the act of complaining or like lodging complaints i have a follow-up question so when you teach this do you tend to approach this as a work of sec- a secondary source a work of literary criticism or do you treat it as a primary text. Yeah, that's a good question. So it depends on in what class I'm teaching it. So in the women in lit classes that I've taught, I will use a one room of one's own and excerpt from it as sort of like an entryway into feminist studies, right? So Mm -hmm. this is where we're starting. This isn't where we're ending. How have we moved forward from here? So it's more like a secondary text, than a, than a primary. And then in um, a short story class, I've used an excerpt and paired 50 pages of it with like different short stories. Mm, that's cool. Yeah. And so, so I've done it with Octavia Butler before and some other people that I can't recall off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> You're on the spot. But yeah. And then also intro to lit. So I, I think I've actually taught it in all of the literature classes that I've taught and intro to lit has been the only one that it's been more like a pro- like a primary text. So I'm thinking that this would also be a nice text to use to encourage students to engage with scholarship where setting them up that they're just not passively absorbing what scholars have said to be like, well, yes, they are the experts, so they are correct, they're right, and just acting as sponges who are absorbing all of it but instead becoming filters who are critiquing these ideas and reviewing them, evaluating them, and trying to make them better. And I think sometimes having that distance to start off with, where it's an idea that on the surface level you agree with. Um, I talk with my students about that, the the difference between being persuasive and being agreeable. Mm-hmm. That like in the 21st century, hopefully no one in the classroom is going to say, yes, women don't belong in universities. That's an agreeable idea. So um, how is she or is she not persuasive in that? Um, And being able to engage with those ideas 
in to start becoming critics themselves. Yeah, I, I really like that that idea of sponge versus filter here. And I think th- I read it somewhere recently, so I cannot take credit for it. <laughs> yeah, but I I think that that's a really valuable explanation to give, and I I definitely plan to use that with students. Mm-hmm. So what's the difference between being a sponge and a filter here? I like that. That's really good. You know who I actually I'm now remembering who I saw in regards to Tell is me. Rory Gilmore. Well, that Rory Gilmore is a sponge not a filter Mm. that she absorbs all that knowledge so things like virginia wolf she would absorb regurgitate but she doesn't actually ever think about how it reflects her current circumstances that if we're talking about second wave feminism fourth wave feminism privilege being blind to it rory gilmore has always had a room of one's own she's had multiple rooms of her own including a pool house right (laughs) she always feels on the outside that why don't they let me in yeah and so i guess now i have an image to go with that uh, for students so don't be rory gilmore be a filter (laughs) not a sponge that's cool i like that yeah so do we want to talk about yellow wallpaper some i'm really excited actually to talk about yellow wallpaper you know that i have feels like a long history with charlotte perkins gilman at this point (laughs) uh her Land has just come up for me again and again as keystone of maternalist fiction. But Yellow Wallpaper is also in that realm. I'm excited. I'll just leave it there. I'm going to turn things over to you before I just lose control of myself. Okay. Okay. So you know how when we were talking about this beforehand in prep, we mentioned, I think that you had the, the, the point where you said they write their way out. Yes. Um, and so this idea that this is sort of text that's meant to be propaganda, right? And, and mm-hmm. it's really directly indirect response to the, the movement for, for the idea of hysteria in women. And so first, I guess, like, is that very direct sort of conversation you have with students in saying, like, it's not accidental, right? Charlotte Perkins Gilman is really aware of, of this sort of oppression of women through this diagnosis of hysteria, right? And so I was also thinking about ways for this text to come forward, and I haven't fully fleshed it out, but have you watched any of Hulu's new uh, show, The Great? I just started this morning, actually. Okay, so for our listeners, this is not staged. I didn't tell Margaret <laughs> to say that, but I... You also didn't see me lean forward with my face lit up like a Christmas tree. Right, and so I just started it a couple days ago, and I keep thinking about how this this sort of dramedy, which is anti-historical and very ironic, could be paired with the yellow wallpaper mm. in this way of thinking about something that's very much a critique and obviously so a critique. I don't know what happens in the great because I've only seen the first two episodes. But, you know, does this idea of them writing their way out work here? And what does it mean in this sort of genre-bending space where the writers of here and now are taking a, hi- a historical figure and subverting her to maybe write their way out in a very absurd, ironic uh, manner that is completely um critiquing toxic masculinity and the ways that we still hold on to that even today i think it's interesting that you talk about that anti-historical approach almost because that brings up something i've been thinking about with one of my issues with the way we teach virginia wolf's a room of one's own that 
we sort of accept on face value of like, yes, women were kept out. It's a shame we've lost so much. We've lost so much. But it erases women's actual contributions. Like, yes, there's no Judith Shakespeare, but there was Aphrobane. And I know Virginia Woolf, other places, has talked about Aphrobane, but not in this essay to the same extent. And so it erases those role models that are available to students and for them to think about how do women write within these contexts? How do they write slant, like Emily Dickinson says? Yeah, absolutely. That, and so Yellow Wallpaper comes before Virginia Woolf's Room of One's Own, so we might think about that well, Charlotte Perkins Gilman was creating a room of her own. Um, she had a lineage. I, I forget exactly how she's related to Harriet Beecher Stowe, but she also grew up in poverty because her, her father abandoned the family. But she did. She wrote her way out. She figured out. So they got her education. They made sure she could handle it. And then people are more familiar with the story of her maternal identity <laughs> maybe not um, but yeah so we have a woman here who's negotiating all of this um and is a very real example so i want to tie it to the great because that's been standing out to me for those of you who haven't watched the great they have uh emperor peter's yeah. aunt as this quirky kooky almost like marginal character in the court which she was the empress that she was Empress Elizabeth, who has a very famous reign. She also took power in a coup. <laughs> and, and so Peter, she had named her heir because she didn't have one. And she wanted to make sure they didn't take back power from her. And she didn't want to name the actual child that she had deposed of, because that would be too much of a threat. And she raised Peter in the court as like a ward of the state. And then when Catherine has her own children, she takes them away too and denies Catherine access to her children because she's not fit as a mother in some ways as the empress in waiting. Right. I guess we can position that way. And so I think you have some ties there of, on one hand, that show is sidelining strong female characters in history but also ignoring some of those, I don't, obviously on the show, Catherine has not yet had any children. She's not even pregnant. So who knows right. how they'll handle her maternity if they do. But it does connect to the idea, I think, of yellow wallpaper and what resources and access women had, not just to be writers, but to be mothers. So that control over their own bodily agency, their own political agency, but also their maternal agency. Um, and I think sometimes in our discussions about what women have overcome, we've erased what they did before those obstacles were, were gone. And so I think sometimes it's great for students just to see that and be like, oh yeah, women were doing the damn thing the whole time. Absolutely, It's yeah. not this like story of trauma, but redemption. Like, look at all the cool stuff they did. Women have been writing history. You just haven't been reading it. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really interesting point and definitely took my unfleshed out ideas about the great and did something really cool with them so that's i've just been holding back from texting people all morning saying elizabeth was empress <laughs> <laughs> like when when they sorry I'm, i just need to say this to get out of my system feel free to cut it out of the podcast but <laughs> when they show the dead body of his mother in that first episode oh dear lord his mom died when he was like three months old he never met her and then his dad died when he was 11 his whole hang up with his mommy issues is not a thing <laughs> just like we had these strong women characters why do we have to 
deny their agency to make them stronger to what you were saying conform to 21st century values rather than seeing how our 21st century values are built off of what they did which i know i've been talking a lot but i'm just gonna no no you're fine yeah because this is what i think is so useful with charlotte perkins gilman that she's a racist she's a nationalist she's a xenophobe but she's also an early feminist she's a suffragette she's a political agitator and i think it's important for students to see all of that together, all those different facets to understand that our 21st century values are built on this complicated, problematic legacy. And just because we don't necessarily openly share those values anymore, it doesn't mean that they're not still informing us and the way we read and interpret and react. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that would lead us really well into a conversation about Me Too, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically someone who is also incredibly complicated um, and problematic would be Rose McGowan, who is mm-hmm. often put at the helm of the Me Too movement, even though um, Toronto Burke is the, the woman who coined Me Too. But we have this figure who is both a victim, but arguably victimizes people in the way that she reacts online and in online spaces, and also is very much a sort of in a room of one's own without realizing that there are people outside of that room. And so you have things like hashtag Rose Army that are attached to Twitter movements or feminist movements on Twitter that don't originate in the West. And so all of which is is sort of related to the same kind of problems that we see in Charlotte Perkins Gilman, where it's like, here's this nuanced person who we need to talk about in terms of their roles in larger feminist movements, but also can't erase the ways in which they're problematic. So that very like teetering balance, right? How do we not glorify this person who did and said things that are not great, but also not completely erase their contributions? Mm -hmm. And understanding that those things that aren't great were just as influential as the things that were. So how does, what sort of, like in the 70s, the racism of, implicit racism of the 1970s feminist movement, it was a lot to Charlotte Perkins Gilman and other women like her. And those issues we grapple with today in the Me Too movement of whose story gets focused on, whose stories do we care about, that has roots in Charlotte Perkins Gilman. And before her too, it's all kind of, those standing on the shoulders of giants, those giants aren't always great. <laughs> right, um, yeah. Do we want to talk about a... Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I do kind of want to talk about a giant who I think is great. Um, yeah. Which is Rachel Carson, who is completely different of the authors that we've been talking about. <laughs> but it has that same sense of they write their way out. So Rachel Carson comes from, like, a very poor family. She wants to be a writer her entire, like, young adult life. And then she ends up becoming a marine biologist of sorts, right? Very much the first woman in her field to do this kind of work. And finds her way back to writing and uses it to support her family after her father dies. And after, I think maybe her sister died and she was raising their children but a family member died and and her and her mom were raising those children and so I would also like to think about that figure of the women who write their way out and beginning with something like yellow wallpaper but then even moving forward into someone like Rachel Carson who writes Silent Spring criticized as being like a whack job in the scientific community 
for quite a long time before it's like, no, she was right about DDT. And there's also things that we could talk about with genre there in which she writes Silent Spring in a way that's not the typical sort of straight... I mean, it is straightforward. I don't want to say it's not straightforward, but it is. It's lyrical to a way in its right. description. Right, right. Um, yeah. And so for some reason, because there's emotion, because, you know, it is an emotional thing to know that all of your food sources are being uh, poisoned. Um, <laughs> but that very natural response is seen as being, like, anti-scientific and, and anti-intellectual when, in fact, she... You need to calm down. Yeah, hysterical. So even, like, mm-hmm. thinking about the history of hysterics and how um, yeah. that idea mo- has moved forward with us. Yeah, so thinking about this balance of women wanting to write their way out but when you tell your story you're called hysterical yeah and I think maybe I want to kind of ground this a little bit more in yellow wallpaper to think about like close readings you can do with your students things like that yeah let's do it so we we keep talking about write their way out and I just want to kind of let people know that the reason we're talking about this is the ending of the short story which is just so bizarre in a way that I love um so we're told throughout the short story that she is writing this story. It's not necessarily supposed to be a story, but that we get very explicitly, I don't know why I should write this. I don't want to. I don't feel able. Oh, I need to put this paper away. I don't want them to catch me with uh, with pencil and paper. Again and again, so that she's hiding this writing. She's writing when she can. We have those breaks when she can't write, so we miss time because of that. And then at the end, we get like, a change in tense um, where we move from past tense where she's telling, well, this is what happened earlier to talking in the present tense. Um, So it it happens right at the end of the story where she's trying to get the wallpaper off. Um, And I know everyone's going to have different page numbers, so I'm not going to (laughs) bother. But that she laughed and she wouldn't mind doing it herself but I must not get tired how she betrayed herself that time so still past tense and then we move to present but I am here and no person touches this paper but me not alive back to past she tried to get me out of the room and then back to present so now she is gone and we get this moment where her her husband's at the door asking her to answer trying to knock it down and he comes in and She's saying, I kept creeping just the same, but I looked at him over my shoulder. I got out at last, said I, in spite of you and Jane, and I pulled off most of the paper, so you can't push me back. Now, why should that man have fainted? But he did, and right across my path by the wall, so that I had to creep over him every time. That she's creeping and writing at the same time, which is not physically possible. So what's happening here? And if she's having a mental breakdown, and then thinking about it later, how is she so cognizant of everything that happened? Um, there's, and I think that this ending is supposed to prompt these questions that, um, of what's happening here, both in its, like, bizarreness, its grotesqueness, but also just in in the possibility of it, and to make us wonder, like, what is mad? What is she writing? What is the act of writing? And... On some level, writing has now kept her trapped in this room. She's creeping around the room as she's writing. And so is it writing that has trapped her or is it writing without community? That every person she has encountered has denied her community, which kind of ties back to what you were saying about Rose McGowan. That like, and and Virginia Woolf, that tension between that possessiveness of creating a space of your own versus creating a community of your own or or a community you are a part of, you don't own it. Right. Um, 
that she has no community, so can she write her way out if she's not able to build a community while she, while she does so? I think that that's a really important point. And then also, I guess, like, thinking about, like, how we build communities and what happens when you try to be the helm of that community, Right. Mm-hmm. And so again, I'm thinking about like Hulu shows. So I'm thinking about Miss America mm-hmm. and Phyllis Shafley, right? So not just being a part of a community in which you are a part of all of these like integral parts, but being the helm of a, of a community in which you're steering the direction of it in a way that like j- your perspective is most important. And so that's really rooted, I think, in second wave feminism as well. Because to push forward your own perspective is to freeze everybody else's. Yeah. It has to conform to yours so there can't be any growth or change or evolution. Like, multiple perspectives allows for that change. And so thinking about if we pair Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own and we think about yellow wallpaper, she's writing in a room of her own. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't work out. This is a privileged woman who seems to have everything. Obviously, her writing is suppressed but what's missing is it that freedom to leave the room is it that community is it something else by putting this in conversation like I don't want to just say like here's my answer but I think that's something that would be really interesting to have students explore in small groups yeah what's missing from this room right absolutely I think that's a really hard question to answer and I think it's hard to answer because it requires a sort of like community uh, analysis, right? To say like, what is missing from this room? Because Charlotte Perkins Gilman obviously has her answer, which is writing, except for the fact that the woman does write in it. Right. And that's something that I always think about, that this is a, a story about why women should be allowed to think and work and write. But also the woman is thinking and writing and... It still doesn't end well. <laughs> well, and I guess, like, it's also, like, the the need for the recognition mm-hmm. of that. Exactly, act. yeah. Yeah. So, I guess, like, maybe antithesis to they, they write their way out is they write, but no one notices it. No one gives it the sort of importance that it deserves. And so, then do we get this, like, really strange ending like in the yellow wallpaper where she's writing but also going mad. And now I just keep thinking about this desire for community, which I don't think Charlotte Perkins Gilman is intending necessarily, but that that woman in the wallpaper, is she trying to imagine community? That, well, here's a woman who knows what I'm going through, and she doesn't have access to those women, so she has to create it, and that drives her to madness. That the women who are available to her, her sister-in-law... Um, her nursemaid, whoever, her mo- her mother, they're not helping her. They're not enabling her. They're continuing her suppression. So there's no community there. Sure. And I think that that really makes me think back to our first points about the digital, right? Bringing the digital mm-hmm. into this and like how the internet can help you create community. But also sometimes that community is just the woman in the wallpaper because it lacks some sort of like real anchoring. Which then also might go into the dangers with creating your room on the internet is that you're creating that echo chamber. So the woman in the wallpaper being a mirror of yourself, even if she's not actually a mirror, she's other people with the exact same perspective that how that can lead to a certain kind of madness. Yeah, absolutely. That's so good. So maybe... Yeah. So maybe this is actually, when we pair these together, we can start talking about the need for diverse 
inclusive communities when we're creating our canon, when we're creating our places of discussion and cultural conversation. I think it's something we're grappling with. Like, obviously, nobody has a perfect way of making inclusive communities. Um, there's no exact roadmap. And we know that Charlotte Perkins Gilman would certainly not want us to make this endeavor. <laughs> um, so. Margaret, tell us how you feel about Charlotte Perkins Gilman. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I... I love how weird she is that she, but girl was a racist. It's also a useful way, I think, I will say this. So this is not about teaching yellow wallpaper, but when I teach Harland, um, we get through the whole novel. My students love how feminist it is. It's a feminist utopia. Everything's so scientific and organized and cultured and peaceful and great. And yeah, wouldn't it be great if women ruled the world? And then we read criticism of um, her political... Um, perspectives and agendas and how one of her concerns with wanting sort of kindergartens and wanting more help for working mothers was that she didn't want Eastern Europeans or women of color raising white children because she thought that would lead to a bad effect. She didn't want a lot of types of immigration. Right. um, She was basically a white nationalist. Yeah. Um, And we talk about that. Yeah. So now let's look at her work again. All the women she depicts are white. Not just that, they're described as Anglo, or Aryan, rather. They're described as Aryan. Um, we There's no disabled people. There's no queer people. There's no, no one with intellectual disabilities. And so, yeah, there's a nice feminist utopia, but only if you look and act a specific way. And so her communities for women who want to write would be still so limited. And I think would we could talk about that would still lead to madness. I feel like I've learned so much just talking through these ideas with you that now I would be really excited to teach these texts. I know. Now my dream syllabus might just be... <laughs> I know. And so, yeah, that's... I mean, I guess, like, that's the goal is to get excited, right? To get off autopilot Mm -hmm. for it. So do we have anything we want to add before we switch to our dream syllabi? Um, I'm not sure. I would just say yellow wallpaper is also fun, I think, with students. If you have intro students to think what you said before about what they're doing intentionally and not intentionally. Obviously, Charlotte Perkins Gilman has a very clear political goal when she writes this. So there are things very consciously done. But there's also some things that you can kind of more easily question with your students, like that name change that we've talked about, mm-hmm. that her sister-in-law is Jenny, 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 and then at the end it's Jane, where it's like, well, is this an error? Is this right. the woman in the wallpaper? Is this her, her own name? And so it allows sort of for that play with your students of close analysis and reading, but you also get to take away the role of the or the author's authority final say about things mm-hmm. that you can bring in that possibility of authorial error yeah um was she so focused on her political goal that she just messed up yeah and i think that introducing some of that like that play between the two different um readings or like not readings but like the questioning versus here it is as a propaganda um message is really interesting when you give them like the two different perspectives 
Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that you could even do an activity where you give a student a set of materials that look at it, like the history of hysteria and, oh, it's very definitely Mm -hmm. this thing. There's no play with it. And then what about the other half of the class gets a different, that, that sort of questioning perspective. And so how they can both uh, then come together at the end and kind of talk through those two different that would like, be views really of cool. it. And I think you could use a lot of, again, I mentioned that there are a lot of comics like that like creators have made on the internet about the yellow wallpaper and then a lot of like fan depictions whether that be like Mm -hmm. short youtube videos of it like in which they're enacting the scenes from it and so there's there are a couple that are very like this is a horror and so that would really go with the questioning one right who is it at the end who's that figure and then there are versions of just like drawings and paintings that people have made individually Mm -hmm. and I think like giving our students those like I like to do the packet thing where I give them two packets of very different information split them up and have them come to their own conclusions and then reconvene and say like wow, look at all the different ways we've interpreted this text. And there is no sort of set right way to approach it. I think that would be really cool to do to like an intro to English studies or intro to literature class to get them to think about the ways we analyze. That would be really fun. And then Um, also I was just looking at, I tweeted it, but it's where people have drawn their, like their isolation maps. So where they've gone Mm. in their house or their neighborhood. And there are a lot of really cool takes on that. But I think a room of one's own would also be really interesting in, in considering the pandemic right now. That's what I was about to say. I can't believe we didn't talk about the pandemic with either of these. Yeah. And so I think that, uh, those could really work in an like an intro to English class that that um, having them draw their own the room of their own, um, especially mm-hmm. when we're working in a digital or virtual classroom space, right? Um, yeah. And pairing that up with an activity like those isolation maps would be really interesting. Um, yeah, to kind of build on that too, with the idea of like trans according to different modes that I think for an intro to literature course, you could also bring in this question of what genre is this that you kind of alluded to, like some are horror, some are gothic, some are propaganda. Maybe there's something there with like mental illness, depictions of mental illness, um, whatever, and have students create their own adaptation using the genre as a guide. So how do you make like a horror film of this? How do you make a visual depiction of mental illness, like the experiences with that, etc. Yeah. Um, but so basically, what we're saying, we're going down this rabbit hole. All the other things you can do <laughs> to keep this text fresh and exciting. Yeah, and so you know, um, for anyone that's listening, assuming that we have more than one listener, which would probably be like my husband. But anyway, <laughs> um, just jokes, just jokes. Um, so it. If you have ideas, we would like to hear them. Yes, feel, please. Yeah, feel free to, you know, send them to us. And we could even at some point have like a shout out episode um, where we mm-hmm. credit some of those ideas and, and chat about them. But yeah, so I'm glad I asked that question. Like, what else do you want to add? Because we could. Yeah, because I think what we're, we're seeing too, there's kind of an infinite amount of ways you can update these. We don't have to keep doing the same approach of just like, this is... 19th century literature this is about women not being included which yeah those are important but 
There's more we can say. Yeah, and I think that um, I always figure out what that more is in this moment of talking through the ideas, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so that's why I would be really excited to, to hear and see some, some other takes on it. Yeah. Especially because when you keep it exciting, your students say exciting things. Like, with yellow wallpaper, I've had students say things that have really changed my reading on things. Like, one of my students who was a psychology major was wondering if it wasn't just postpartum depression, but that she had lost the baby. Since you never see her interact with the baby. You hear about it, you know right. it's a baby, yeah. but where is it? And so she was like, is this not postpartum, but grief maybe exacerbated by postpartum, but this total... And so that's not necessarily a reading that I prioritize, but it's always in the back of my head now. And your students will say these exciting things when they're given the space to explore. Yeah, not to mention that like our excitement is contagious, right? And I am much Mm -hmm. more excited about talking through a text or teaching it when I'm doing something that I haven't done 25 times already you know (laughs) yeah and so students will give rote answers for rote questions yeah yeah okay now I'm gonna pin you down what's your dream Mm -hmm. syllabi right now so because of everything we're talking about and right now I'm re or listening to gingerbread by Helen Oyemi I might be mispronouncing that okay um I'm thinking a lot about fairy tales and adaptations of fairy tales and I feel like most of the classes I've seen about fairy tales and adaptations have focused on Victorian literature. Um, and so I'd like to do a contemporary literature class on fairy tales and thinking through how a lot of these adaptations use fairy tales as inspirations, but not necessarily like that one for one um, that we see in a lot of those talks about adaptations. Yeah. So um, Gingerbread has this very like fairy tale magical quality. But it's not a fairy tale. It's basically like they have emojis. They're, her daughter may or may not have overdosed. And so you have to kind of wonder, like, well, what's real? What's an illusion? What's magic? And I think there's a number of other texts you could look at like that right now. That would be really fun to think about craft. Yeah. And so you might even think about Toni Morrison's God Help the Child, right? Mm-hmm. And like what's real and yeah like I'm more familiar with Song of Solomon so I'm thinking that like inclusion of oral culture and and, and folk tales and that passing down and what's real and what's not and that ending really depends on what you think is real how you're going to interpret mm-hmm. it and how we adapt folk culture fairy tales and oral communication to a written text I also kind of want to point you towards uh, Matt Johnson's Pym which I've brought up several times mm. in the last week uh, because it's, it, it's not, it's, it's definitely not, like, a, it's not a fairy tale, but there's this, like, the Yeti figure, like, folk tales. I'm open to, like, folk, folk Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that there's think, some stuff going on with, like, oral traditions there, too. And I think you could all base it, I know Betelheim is problematic, mm-hmm. well, but I think he's really useful for students to think about analysis and psychoanalysis, so it'd be really fun to, like, also think about those sorts of... I think it'd be a fun way to, to enter, like, analysis and, and close reading and breaking down of um, kind of techniques authors are using. Oh, and yeah, and if you did that with, um, like, psychoanalysis and PIM, you'd have to do... I can't get off of Hulu. I'm basically a promoter. They should just pay us. Yeah, give a coupon code. Yeah, the, the documentary uh, about the Biosphere Project. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I have not watched it yet. But... but, but 
I think that that could be really interesting, all of that. I don't know how you, like, you know, I think maybe I veered a little from your fairy tale adaptation, but it would be, if we're thinking about, like, ways to rejuvenate popular themes, it would be a different way of approaching that fairy tale adaptation sort mm-hmm. of syllabi. Yes, I want to hear about your your syllabus well, or dream course. Well, mine is not that exciting. I randomly was thinking about this really terrible paper I wrote the first semester of grad school about <laughs> sense and sensibility and how it was, um, so, like, the marriage plot, I read it as, um, an enforcement of the scientific method, right? So the sort of steps of the scientific method um, and how they played out through that marriage plot. Mm. So good, maybe a good idea. I don't know. I have to revisit it. But I think I might be interested in a class that looked more in-depth at the marriage plot um, Mm. and kind of paired it with... I, I do, I kind of want to pair it with some sort of science-y thing. But I don't know if, I know that paper was bad, so I'm not sure <laughs> if it would if it would play out well or not. But it's something I'm interested in right now. Something, if you went down that route, that could be interesting to incorporate is Matthew Arnold's, I forget the title, something with culture. But one of the things he argues is that Ireland is like the hybrid of the Britannia-Germanic marriage fusion. Mm-hmm. That they're that it's almost like the child of England and German Germany. Or no, I'm lying. I'm lying. I take everything I said back. Vice versa. Okay. And that Britain is the hybrid of Ireland, so Celtic, Celtic sentimentality and emotion and like German structure and right, <laughs> like, right. And, and and rationality. And so that's why England is the best because they are both emotional and creative, but also rational and in control. And but he also uses that to argue why like England should treat Ireland better. Mm. But kind of that interest of like these sorts of lineages um and what's a good pairing for for successful partnership Mm -hmm. or for successful progeny um that that could be kind of interesting to think through that i think that i i i am interested in this idea that these were not just like matters of the heart but that Mm -hmm. characters were portrayed in a in a way in which they were i don't know maybe thinking like through a, a logical set of steps and there's a lot of scholarship on like Victorian literature and science and medicine that I think would make like lend well to some of these ideas about how to yeah. how to make that connection that would be really fun well I guess that's it for today yep that's all so until then keep building your dream syllabus because I want to hear about it all right talk to you later Margaret okay.